Norberto Lopez, a CTO of Duffel. Shaping the future of travel. Talk to us about that statement and, and what that means to, to you and the business. Absolutely. Um, so we really want to we want travel to be just effortless. Um, if when we talk about our vision and mission, it's all about making travel effortless. Um, travel should be as easy as doing almost anything else, but what we find is that it tends not to be. Things get in the way. Uh, and so that's pretty much it. We want to we start we're starting with air or flights but yeah the the whole mission is make make it effortless uh, and that's how we want to shape the future of travel well, where do you think it's been challenging for customers before so if you think from a passenger perspective so as yep. a traveler you're you're going from a to b you can have many challenges one the first one is where are you going to search for your flight yeah uh once you solve that hurdle, you're going to go, where should I stay? Should I rent a car or not? And then insurance is going to get in the way. It's like everyone is going to try to sell you insurance, which is like all of these things are great. Uh, but in the end of the day, you have systems that constantly make your life just a tiny bit harder. Uh, yeah. Sometimes you book a flight through, this is getting better, by the way, with airline uh, applications yeah. where you book a flight through, I don't know, a, a Skyscanner or um, um, or some travel website out there, like one of our customers, Ulysses, and you then have like, do I have to have an app for each of those? Can I just go to the airline and have the booking? But if I have the booking that wasn't booked through the airline, what does that mean? Can I still have bags? Can I change the... All of these things means that it, it gets in your way. Uh, if one of your flights gets canceled, how do you adjust it on the spot to get into another flight? Uh, and it was also thought most of these systems were thought in an era of, or at a time where the internet wasn't as prevalent as today, uh, where it is easy to go on Twitter and tag an airline and say, I can't believe you just canceled the flight. What should I do now? And you have customer agents responding to you on Twitter. Um, it used to be that you have you know, a physical ticket, and some people still do, uh, and you have to go to, uh, to someone, speak with them, uh, maybe make a phone call and try to adjust things. How how would you best describe your APIs and what they actually do for the airline industry? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so the airline industry started fairly early on, like many, many decades ago, uh, with programmatic access. Uh, and there are plenty of these systems out there. And... All of them have tried to change and simplify things as they go along. Uh, but most of the standards, for example, for the, uh, the more technical of us, like they're based in XML, that's pretty much the gold standard still. Uh, and they all are about the... They're almost like 
a detail that doesn't quite matter to build a travel business, but it matters quite a lot. Uh, and that's why, or I think, a lot of the reasons why people go through, uh, let's hire a team to build an application or whatever. It's because they don't want to deal with the technological part. It's difficult. Uh, documentation is rare. Uh, but not only that, then they are found in systems that are truly complex because they try to keep compatibility for all of the things or most of the things. Uh, and there's an argument to be said that, you know, compatibility is good. Like I do like compatible things, uh, but there is a breaking point. And so what we've done with Duffel is when you come to search for flights, you're probably going to be do a series of things that are core to the act of searching and booking. And therefore, you don't need a lot of the complexity or you can kind of get rid of it to a large degree. Uh, there's also the, in, in the airspace or travel space, there are these things called GDSs, which are the global distribution systems. They have not just uh, flights, but uh, rail and others. And they, their APIs are typically uh, quite large. Uh, again, very backwards compatible. They still use old airline systems uh, to a large degree. Uh, we're talking standards like Edifact for, um, for searching and, and booking. And the today we have somewhat better standards, arguably. I'm sure there are plenty of experts in, in the flights industry that would go, is it a better standard? Uh, but airlines definitely think it is, uh, yeah. which is NDC. I'm talking about the new distribution capabilities. Okay. This is a, a standard published by IATA uh, that airlines like because they can implement it according to a specific standard and then people can integrate through that. That's all still XML. What we do at Duffel is abstract that away from travel merchants. We go, it doesn't matter if it's NDC, it doesn't matter if it's a direct connection, like your own proprietary uh, API. It doesn't matter if it's a, almost a GDS. We're going to give you access to the airlines and the format is going to be always the same. Okay. So you basically absorb the complexity. You give back a seamless experience of being able to book and connect flights, essentially. Pretty much. You put it in five seconds. That's pretty much it. Blimey. Um, where do you think the plans are going forward for, for Duffel and the product? Could there be plans to go elsewhere? Maybe. Uh, we, I mean, our mission is about travel. Yeah. Uh, not just flights. So I could very well see us going into uh, lodging one day, into um, like renting cars as well as part of the API. Uh, but again, our really like where we want to take it is travel should be programmable and it should be effortless. It should not get in the way. And, and so wherever we go, whatever we do, uh, we just want to simplify. Nice. Uh, we want, yeah make travel super easy for everyone there's there's a really nice phrase that i love um rebuilding the travel infrastructure layer by layer mm -hmm. um i think i've got that right what yeah. what does that mean for duffel and the engineering team 
Yeah. Um, so it's um, this infrastructure. I, I've spoke about a few parts. Like you, yeah. I would consider almost GDS as part of the infrastructure. I would consider like the Edifact standard as part of the infrastructure. Okay. Um, the for us, it's a, and and this is the approach we've been taking so far. It's a let's uh, first let's abstract that infrastructure. No one cares. No one cares if your standard is Edifact or NDC or whatever it is. But what they care specifically, merchants, is how do I build a travel business in the fastest possible way with things getting out of my way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what we try to go for is let's make sure that APIs are great, that documentation is great and readily mm-hmm. available. The developer experience is superb. Mm-hmm. You can, if you want, you can even self-serve, as in you can go through our flow, enter your details, you pass a basic KYC check, and you can sell flights. Wow. Uh, our CEO, Steve, actually has like a five-minute uh, video of doing all of this. Uh, wow. Start to finish. Uh, and all of that to say what? It is possible to get the technical aspects out of the way. Then you come the regulatory and almost like more bureaucratic aspects, but I would consider them part of infrastructure. And to give an example, you for you to sell a flight in a given region, I'm oversimplifying, but in a given region, you probably will have to have something like a NIATA agency code. Hmm. Uh, you then have to go to an airline, agree on specific prices, which we call content. Uh, so airlines sell content to you. Hmm. Uh, and once you have that, you then have a, a way, let's say, to pay for those flights, etc., uh, because there are many m- methods of payment in the industry. And th- all of that takes time. All of that takes money. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of, to, to almost a large degree, it's like, surely there's a better way to do this. And what we've done at Duffel is we have this concept of managed content where we have created our own agencies, so okay. Duffel agencies around the world. Mm-hmm. We have gone to airlines and have negotiated that content. Yeah. And so you can register to us, say, hey, I'll use Duffel's content. Yeah. And you're basically selling flights. That's it. Uh, and that's what we kind of mean to like rebuilding this infrastructure, like just consider the whole thing from a very different perspective. Um, then we can go into the technical aspects, which is which are also fascinating, and there are very complex problems there. But yeah, I, I'd love to. I, I think now I'm really clear with Duffel uh, as a business and what you do. Just explaining in the last couple of points, uh, help us go through a bit of a deep dive into uh, maybe two or three of your technical challenges, hard technical challenges sure. um, that, that keep you up as a CTO? Sure. So one is search. Okay. Just when you consider search, search is a complex problem. And when I say complex, I don't just mean 
engineers uh, building a thing. Uh, it's from a, even from a mathematical perspective, mm-hmm. uh, search is a com- it's it's complex. Uh, there are many papers written around the routes from A to B and the complexity of those routes. Uh, if people are interested, they can search for Carl de Marken, uh on complexity of uh, air planning or something like that. Uh, it's a great paper from 2003, I believe. And in effect, when you search a flight from JFK to Dallas, for example, you're probably going to be in the ballpark of millions and millions of ways to get from that point A to point B. Uh, Yeah, because you have combinability of the flights that you can take on the connections that you can take, the fares, and when, when you multiplex all of that, it becomes a bit nuts. And... What that means is when someone goes from, okay, A to B, search across all of these airlines for whoever has a flight that kind of serves this thing, your first challenge is actually, is is that provider going to offer that route? Yeah. And what most people probably think, which is the wrong guess, is that those suppliers or those providers will know the routes that they fly and they can give you a list. But that's not the case. Uh, and that's because airlines have partners. So uh, British Airways, for example, has partnerships with Iberia. Iberia then has partnerships with LATAM. And so when you go to a British Airways website, you search from London to Lima, Peru, and you get results. Mm-hmm. But a British Airways plane probably does not fly the whole thing uh, yeah. there. Uh, and so, you, you, yeah, you have this problem just on, is this route supported by the supplier? And because Duffel, we are an intermediary, yeah. you can say, enable all of the suppliers, mm-hmm. which might be more than 270 airlines, yeah. and say, okay, search from London to JFK, yeah. and we have to figure out which airlines to go. Just at the very basic, that's... a uh, really interesting challenge uh, and we have that challenge like we have a routing engine that that we've built on like okay. where do we go and sh- should we even send this request to an airline i, I was going to say did, did you build the that search function or search engine yourself you answered the question you did mm-hmm. yeah um we have we have yeah we call it the routing engine uh, we use data sources from multiple places including airlines some airlines do go, hey, this is our basic route list. Uh, and then we have a, a few sets of rules to go, yeah, okay, this, this additional route that um, they should fly, we've also added it, et cetera. Yeah, uh, the, yeah at, at it's very basic. It's, it's, it's an incredible challenge and difficult one. And it also needs to be fast because if, if it's slow, you're going to leave uh, your search. Uh, there's so once you do the request, you then find another types of problems. These are a bit more bureaucratic, but they have they are although they seem bureaucratic in nature, they come from a technical challenge, which is you make a request to an airline. Airlines have this concept of a look to book ratio, and this is how many searches they allow you to perform for 
uh, every booking that you make. Or, and this can be from 500 to 1 to 10,000 to 1, depending on the airline. Yeah. Uh, and so if you send too many searches, they're going to penalize you in some way. Okay. Wow. And, and yeah, and this comes from they want to incentivize you to book a flight. They don't, don't just want you to search indefinitely and never book a flight. Yeah. Right. Uh, and so when this routing engine becomes even more important, because we definitely should not send a route that their airline doesn't fly. Because if you do, you're just wasting that uh, look-to-book ratio. Uh, now, once you've done the search, then you have the problem of some airlines will give you results. And the, the bigger the airline, the more routes the airline flies, the bigger the payload. So an airline can actually give you a 10 to 20 megabyte payload okay. on a search, just with offers. You then have the problem of parsing that payload, structuring to the thing you want, saving it into a database, sending it back to the customer with those offers, maybe perhaps after filtering on something, sorting, et cetera. And then they have to show it to their customers. And so then you have the problem here of how do you do this effectively on 10 and 20 megabyte payloads? Uh, and it might seem easy, like 10 megabytes nowadays is meh, it's fine. But when, when you put millions of search requests into the fold, yeah. then things become quite interesting in, in how much you, you have to squeeze. And because almost all of the, these payloads are XML, yeah. now you, you kind of like have to go into the, the world of like, okay, does a default off-the-shelf XML library going to cover our performance needs? Do we actually have to do something different here? Uh, and we found, yes, you kind of do. Specifically in Elixir, we, we've, we've uh, um, implemented some, of, some in-house stuff just to be able to parse XML really? efficiently. Yeah, yeah. Really? Okay. Search is number one problem. That's your second. What would you say the third problem? Is for you guys and girls. Um, still on the technical space, I assume. Yeah. I would still have search. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that is the... When you do all of these searches, you want to kind of like store them. Yeah. So that you can do data analysis on top of it. Yeah. And obviously improve what you do as a business. When you have millions and millions and millions of these, it becomes a real challenge uh, where very quickly, we're talking in weeks time, maybe even less than that, you're building terabytes worth of data. Yeah. Uh, and so the just the management of storage of those uh, searches or th those offers that come through those searches uh, can become an interesting problem, especially as that flows within the organization for, for analytics. How, how do you challenge the the analytics part? Because the storage of that data in such large volume, I can imagine, can be quite challenging. And I, I don't know what analysis you do of mm -hmm. your data, um, yeah. but it would be good to understand that. You know, what, what challenges are there? Yeah. Right now, the, our main challenges are just in extracting, in extraction from really? our main data store to something like BigQuery. Okay. Uh, 
and we're still going through some of those challenges. Um, our uh, data analysis today that we do, I would say it's not very tricky. Uh, we're talking like top origin destinations for merch for a given merchant, for a given airline, uh, how many bookings have been done out of searches, etc. So that that's somewhat easy. Uh, but even for, I'll give you an example, BigQuery. Putting the data there is simple, somewhat easy. S- storage is fairly effective. Querying it becomes a costly problem uh, if you go over all of that data set. And so you don't want to go over that data set. You want to partition it, et cetera. So the teams are actually going through this now on like, okay, we kind of want lots of these data, but how are we going to do this in a way that's not going to break the bank? Yeah, I got you. Uh, this this seems like quite a new problem space and some newer technical challenges. Is this unknown territory for you and the team? Are you and are you navigating some of these engineering challenges as you go? Mm, that's a great question. Some yes. For example, the search and routing engine. Yeah, that's definitely new, new challenges, and there are companies that have done this and do this. Um, but you also get into the mode of like, if you hire from them, then they'll probably have contracts that say, hey, you can't actually implement the, the same thing. Or if if you try to do it all by yourself, then you, you're you literally building a company because there are companies just dedicated to, here's a data set of routes. Um, uh, but even companies that offer data sets, they might not have all of the rules you'd like on those data sets, so you still need to kind of build an ad hoc thing on top of it uh, and enrich it with other sources that you might have, which is our case. Um, but the the data side, I think that's, for, for us, it's a bit of a challenge just because we uh, were so focused on building the product uh, that now we're just turning into we were turning towards the, okay, what do we do in the data space with the data that we've been accruing? Yeah. And all of a sudden, you know, we came out of COVID where obviously volumes were very low for the travel industry. These yeah. volumes are increasing and we're now just like, what the heck? How, what do we do with this stuff? Uh, and I'm very fortunate. I, I came from a company where I saw us doing some of this. Uh, so I kind of have some form of a playbook. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's it's quite an interesting job. Uh, and you're really open about what you do as well, aren't you? As a business, that that's one of your mantras. We are really open about what we yeah. do. What what do you think that means? Uh, a few things. So if if I start just on the business side, it is almost unheard of in the industry to have such open documentation, have a self serve. Uh, registration flow, uh, have, you know, guides that help you integrate like from zero to finish, zero to a hundred. Uh, and so even in that mode, we're very open about, yeah. hey, here's what we're building and here's how you can use it and go for it. We're going to just get out of your way. Uh, on the technical space, we do build uh, a few open source libraries. So we contribute back to the Elixir community. Nice. Uh, in fact, just yesterday, we we're having a discussion on one of our libraries that engineers internally went, 
huh, there are a few PRs open. We should probably take a look at this. Uh, and it was just we were too busy focused, focusing on, on, on building product. I feel like Joe Rogan. I'm live Googling while I'm on a podcast. Yeah, yeah, go for it. It's I'll I have a little look. Yeah. If you go to github.com slash duffelhq. Yeah, uh, nice. I'm on it. it. I'm going to put a couple of links down there in the YouTube description as well. And yeah. um, everyone else can check some of those out. Because I think this will attract the Elixir community. And, and that dovetails quite nicely into our our next conversation that we're really keen to talk about. So why Elixir? <laughs> who who chose Elixir and why? Yeah, I think everyone asks me this question and, and I, I have a, an answer that I'm not sure it's satisfactory, but it's it's the truth. So Steve, our CEO, he is a big Elixir fan. Uh, it's pretty much his favorite language. He, he was a software engineer as well. And so when he started Duffel, he started with Elixir uh, okay. and then started hiring people that obviously uh, knew Elixir and he was close to the Elixir community. Uh, I think he was the initial organizer for the Elixir meetup in London. Uh, I think it has since been taken over, but uh, that, that was Steve. Uh, and yeah, the first few hires he did, everyone worked in Elixir. They were quite you know, like they had the, the support that they needed for Elixir. Then when I arrived and pretty much my my big challenge was how do we grow the team so that we can build as much product as we can during COVID, during the pandemic, I, I obviously have a decision to make, which is do we keep with Elixir? Do we change? Because it was at, still at somewhat in the beginning. Mm -hmm. There was an opportunity to do that. Um, there's always an opportunity to do it, but... Um, I, I honestly looked at it and went, no, the, this language is mighty fine. Uh, and in fact, we hired people that don't need to learn Elixir. Uh, we can guide them through Elixir when, when they onboard. And we think it's a really nice language to learn and re become fairly effective quite quickly. Uh, it does have a different paradigm. Uh, it's a functional language. So you kind of have to adjust uh, your bearings if you if you're not used to to that paradigm uh, but once you do yeah you can go quite quick and quite fast uh, and deep and so far it has served our purposes uh, elixir relies on the erlang programming language and erlang vm yeah uh, which is very very stable very very efficient um and so we yeah no no problems i just Personally, I find Elixir to be a much nicer language than Erlang, but okay. that's, that's my opinion. What, why, would, uh, why would someone want to use Elixir? Ooh. It, one, it has a vibrant ecosystem. Uh, two, it has an exceptional community. Okay. Uh, and three, it is a language, like when you consider Ruby or Python or Elixir, I would put Elixir pretty much al alongside uh, Ruby or Python, really? including the you know those languages on steroids specifically for web development. When you consider like Ruby on Rails, in Elixir we have Elixir and Phoenix, yeah. uh, the Phoenix framework. Uh, Python has uh, Django, etc. But it, it's just nice. Now the difference here is the paradigm, and the paradigm does help. 
okay. uh, I think. Uh, you at In the beginning, you might get uh, be taken back by, oh, why can't I change this map? Uh, and it's like, well, you can, but it's just going to be a copy of the thing. Uh, you quickly get used to it and quickly get used to this way of like transformations of your data rather than doing things to 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 a thing yeah um and yeah people pre- I, I i would pick the languages uh, for projects like you would pick ruby on rails or python really okay that to be fair that was going to be my next question is in um just on a whim i'm thinking about where other niche languages have been used i can think of two companies in london um, that are using closure that are in the um, banking space or fintech space uh, i'm i'm just trying to put not necessarily put elixir in a box um, but to understand where you might use it if you're building certain types of product does it does it play better to certain types of products for a reason so one hours it actually plays well to our type of product. Okay. Uh, the the example I gave on, you get a request from a customer, you do something, you go to an, an external provider, get back responses, transform them again, and give back answers. On a functional paradigm, this works quite well. You're basically just doing transformations. Okay. Uh, going in and then going out. Uh, and then because it has the Erlang VM underneath it, it's quite efficient in serving web uh, processes. So it's almost like by default, uh, you know, it, it's not quite as simple as this, but it, it's it's quite a scalable language. Just nice. by default, you, you just put it there and throw a million requests, 20 million, and it's going to be just fine. Nice. And uh, and actually, what I think you've done is quite smart. And we're going to touch on some of the recruitment process and understand a little bit more about how you work. But I think at, at the moment, as a CTO, especially in London, with the way the market is, I think you've obviously been quite smart, uh, keeping a current team happy in a tech ecosystem, use, still using Elixir, but introducing what it seems like um, other people from other stacks into the business where they don't need to learn Elixir and you can help them on board. So help us understand a little bit about the recruitment process and the thought process behind it. Sure. Um, so our recruitment process is pretty much a three-step f- process. Uh, and we don't really optimize for Elixir. That is the crucial element, I would say. Uh, we we do have Elixir experts in-house, don't get me wrong. Uh, we have hired people that I would consider like these people know Elixir inside out. They are phenomenal at what they do. Uh, and because of that, we can go, you know .NET, but you want to try uh, Elixir or you know, the, the product that we're building is the thing that matters to you. Join us. We're going to teach you the language. Uh, most people go through the tutorial. They're going to pair with 
a few of these people and very quickly they get the basics uh, and then they go into more complicated stuff that obviously, as any other language has, Elixir also has. Uh, but you can get pretty far in building product with just the basics of Elixir. Uh, that's my honest uh, assessment. And anyway, so we, we get people, uh, we talk to them, we talk about what we're trying to build. Um, we talk obviously about our own internal ecosystem. So we, we've spoken a lot about Elixir, but our front end is all built in uh, React and TypeScript, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but we... Um, we talk about the ecosystem, and then this is during a like a recruiter call. After that, they go into a almost like general assessment. Mm -hmm. uh, it's for us to get our bearings on if we're hiring a mid-level uh, engineer, and all of the answers are like they didn't know the answers. They always have answers to things, but they were half right, half wrong. You know, you, you get the sense to go. Should we continue? Should we not? You kind of make a, a risk assessment there on getting yeah. the person to continue. Once they continue, we effectively have like four interviews that we tend to line up according to the to the to the candidates' needs. Sometimes they go, I can take a morning or an afternoon and I'll just do them all. Others are like, Look, I have a job. I have kids. I'm going to take an hour here. I'm going to take an hour a week later. I'm going to... And we're okay with that too. Uh, and what we do in those four is there's one, which is the coding challenge. We give you uh, like, hey, this challenge is going to be about data manipulation. You bring your own environment on the language that you know best we do not want to see any of your Elixir skills. And it, we also like, this is going to ingest some JSON. So make sure that you have, you know, a library that you know well that can uh, parse and manipulate JSON. And then we just ask them to do a few operations uh, on it and see how they go and how the types of questions that they ask. Frankly, the, the coding challenge that we have is like 90% communication. Nice. Um, and 10% like almost coding skills. Yeah. And then we have what we call uh, architecture challenge, uh, which is we give um, like a, I'm going to simplify here, but like how would you build a search engine? Uh, what would kind of like, what kind of boxes would, would you use to build that engine? And once again, it's about, I, I would say, 50% communication and another 50% your awareness outside of what you do on a day-to-day -day basis. So some people might, all of their boxes are about how they would structure a search engine in, in, in a code base. Yeah. Others go, well, you kind of need a love balancer. You need something to resolve a domain name. And then you need a database and you, you, you need these types of data stores. And we stretch people in whatever way, in whatever path they take. Yeah, got And you. go, you know what? This person knows a lot of what they're talking about. Uh, system design scenario. Yeah, kind of system design, yeah. Then we have, uh, we call it a behavioral interview. It has a really nonsensical name, uh, honestly. But the what we do is we take, let's say I'm interviewing an engineer. 
no engineer will be part of the interview. We'll take other people from other parts of the business and they'll sit down with an engineer uh, and they'll ask them questions that are related to our company values, uh, nice. to honestly how to just be a good human being, a good citizen of an organization. And you'd be surprised how many people do not crazy things, but uh, <laughs> it, which is really almost like a filter there that we have. Yeah. Uh, you need that. And, and we also do the opposite, right? Where if you hire someone for, for sales, you might have someone from the partnerships team and someone from engineering interviewing okay. them during that behavioral interview. Smart. Um, and then we have a founder slash executive interview. Okay. Uh, and this is more about the, how, like, how they think about their goals, how they think about working in an organization, uh, how they think about their own effectiveness. Um, which is quite good. And it also serves a different purpose. So all of these interviews, we give them about 15 minutes at the end of every single one of them. Okay. For the candidate to ask us questions. Um, and some candidates do grill us through all of those interviews. And I do think they? It's great. Yeah, yeah, that's great. What, what do you think makes a good engineer? You personally? So many things. Uh, <laughs> I... At the very basic, there's one thing I love in my greatest engineers, which is they are open to a different experience, to open to change, open to getting that feedback in whatever form it comes and then do something about it. Uh, I don't like people that are static. I, don't, I tend to not like engineers that go, I already know everything I need to know. I'm the expert in this language. Yeah. That's it. And I'm like, mm, uh, that, that's not very interesting to me as an engineer. Yeah. Uh, I tend to see that as a non-negotiable quite a lot for a lot of companies, especially in, um, especially in, I think, a system design conversation. I see that happening quite regularly. Um, and I do think it's it's really critical. I think it comes down to self-awareness, reflectiveness, um, how you see other people in the room, in the team, the business. Yeah, introspection. You're absolutely right. Uh, I think it's it's massively important. Um, I, I've I, I'm really keen to see where where you guys and girls go as a business uh, over the the coming years. The the travel industry's got some really interesting times at the moment, some interesting times ahead. We've just left some really interesting times yes. related. Um, but I'm, I'm keen to see where the business goes. I'm keen to check in and see how some of your search challenges are. And I'm going to stay updated with what you guys and girls are contributing to the Elixir community. And for everyone who's listened to this, there's going to be some um, content below here. Um, in regards to um, some of what they're actually publishing and working on and helping the community on. And Alberto, big thanks for for coming to join us and like, share, post, tell your friends all about Duffel, what they're doing, what they're building, run a demo, get involved. But Indeed. Keep an eye on these guys and girls. They're doing some cool stuff. Thanks for having me. Hey, guys. Thanks for watching this episode. Uh, massively appreciate you listening and checking in with us. 
If you want to find out more about us and what we're doing, please check us out on social media. What we're trying to do at Engineers is build a community to drive knowledge, sharing and experiences. On Twitter, we can be found at engineers.io. It's no underscore. We've also got a website, which is engineers.io. These links will all be posted in the description. Any feedback and comments are massively appreciated. We're always looking to improve on where we can. Thanks, guys.